You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are really glad that you're here. Uh, wow, 23 years, huh? That is something. Yeah. I tell you, uh, I was a young man when we started, I promise. And um, I don't know what you were doing 23 years ago, but I can tell you, I remember before our one service that we had, I was in a panic that no one would show up. And I was pleasantly surprised, but yeah, I was in a panic. Uh, it was the year 2000, and um, Homeland Security didn't exist yet, so you could just, I know for some of us, if you're like under the age of 22, then uh, you don't know this, but there was a time that you could just walk right up to the gate of the airport and um, pick someone up or drop someone off. Uh, in the year 2000, uh, we didn't even know McDonald's was bad for us yet. <laughs> we did. I mean, we had a suspicion, but we didn't have hard data because the Super Size Me documentary was still four years away. And um, back in 2000, almost everyone that I knew had a beeper, and we all wore them on our belts. By the way, weird thing about back in 2000, everyone wore belts. Even with shorts, people wore belts. I don't understand that fashion choice, but that's, that's, that's where we were. And um, so in church, church things were different. Uh, let me tell you something. Back then, the most powerful person in church was certainly not the pastor. The po most powerful person in church was the person who ran the overhead projector. Now, if you were old enough to remember that or you went to a church that, that did, and if you didn't, let me just tell you that. You know the, the overhead projector that your math teacher used in class? We would use that at church to show the lyrics to the songs. And that person ruled with an iron fist. And they would have these transparent sheets with all the lyrics, and then they would get a page, a blank page of copy paper, and they would just give you one line. That's it. You know, this last song, they gave us two lines. We could not handle that back then. No, no, no. Just one line at a time. And if you had a problem with that, good luck uh, telling anybody to complain to. I mean, you'd have to disconnect your landline, connect it to your computer, You'd have to log into America Online and then click on that little paperclip guy that would help you send an email. It was a crisis back then, trying to do anything. Music was different back in 2000. Uh, you want to know what the, one of the most popular songs was in 2000? In fact, I'm not even going to tell you the name. I'm just going to give you the hand signals. It went like this. You know that song? I heard it. Yeah, that's right, In Sync. Bye, 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 bye. I do the whole routine, but I don't have time. And so another popular song, really popular that year, was uh, Smooth by Carlos Santana featuring Rob Thomas, which I've always liked that song, but when I really understood the song, that song, and you'll never, gonna, you're, you'll never listen to it the same again, that song is about a white guy marrying a Latin woman and not knowing what he got himself into. That's what that whole song is about. And now I listen to it, I'm like, oh, I feel for you, buddy. And, uh, and, and sadly, that man has never been heard from again. And uh, so, anyway, uh, most popular TV show in 2000. I'm, I'll give you the three most popular TV shows in 2000. Number one, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Number two, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Number three, you guessed it, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Because that show was on three days a week. That's how much we loved Regis. All right, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Are you serious? Yes, I am. Final answer. And um, it, was, it was, listen, things were different back then. Things, the 2000 election, listen, if you weren't around, the 2000 election was so contentious. People were complaining about the election results. Well, I guess some things haven't changed, but... Things were different. They, uh, you know, I'll tell you another thing that hasn't changed. 23 years ago, when, uh, when we started this church, we made a decision that we were going to be a Bible-teaching church, meaning that we were going to teach through books of the Bible and train God's people to know God's Word. And that very first Sunday, I, I started the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 1, I think I taught the first 11 verses or so. That was book number 1. And uh, 23 years later, we've been through 49 books of the Bible as we've been teaching through. Yeah, I appreciate that. 
And so this year, we went back to the book of Acts because I realized that most of you weren't there uh, when the first time we went through. Uh, and then the other thing is, is uh, I didn't do a very good job the first time. So we're trying to correct some past mistakes as we, as we go through. But let me ask this. Um, is anybody here that, w- that was at Calvary when we were in the hotel? Probably not. Oh, well, Mark, yeah, we started the church in this man's house right here. Mark Smith. Listen, Mark Smith is one of the people that I love most in this world because he believed in us when he had no reason to. And um, he was going to a church and uh, they told, I'm just going to talk about you for a minute. I hope that's okay. And that has nothing to do with my notes. So if I go over, it's not my fault. It's Mark's fault. And, um, but um, we were going to start a church in Miami Lakes and, the, and he was going to a church and he was the only person that lived in Miami Lakes. And, uh, and so the pastor, who's a dear friend of mine, said, hey, if there's anybody who lives in Miami Lakes and you feel like God is calling you to host this Bible study for Pastor Bob, um, anyone who lives in Miami, and everyone knew he was the only person who lived there. And he's like, well, I guess, I guess it's me. And so then he was, he was attending the Bible study that we were doing. And then um, he had also been going to that church for a little while. And he was praying. And he's like, Lord, where do you want me to go to church? And God just said to him, home church. It's in your home. There's no commute. And so anyway, and 23 years later, he's still here. Thank you, Mark. We love you. And um, anybody came uh, the t- when we were in the theater? Few people in the theater? Yeah, awesome. Love you guys. Um, anybody here came? Barbara Goldman High School in, uh, in Miami Lakes? Anybody? Few people? Few people in the back? All right, we love you guys too. And how about Everglades? Some of you showed up and we were at Everglades. Yeah, that's awesome. Everglades was a good time. And then how many of you uh, started here with us? And how many of you don't attend here yet? And uh, you, just, you haven't even just came for the first time? All right, very good. Making sure you're awake. Now, here's, um, here's what I love about this section of the book of Acts. It is one of my absolute favorite moments in the entire Bible, and that is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And um, do you remember in high school when there was all these superlatives that people would get, you know, voted most likely to succeed, voted most athletic, voted cutest couple? I don't know if you know this, and she'll never tell you. My wife in her school of like 2,000 people was voted the most liked person in her high school. Yeah, that's amazing. I was voted class clown in the eighth grade, and I remember when I came home and told my parents, they've never been prouder. We're like, well, at least he won something. And, uh, and so, <laughs> but if Saul of Tarsus went to your high school, he would have been voted most likely not to convert to Christianity because Saul was a Pharisee. And that is that he was part of the strictest, most conservative sect of Judaism. And his, he had made it his personal mission to hunt down Christians, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. In fact, after Paul becomes a Christian um, in about 34 AD, as we're going to read, it's going to be probably about 15 years before he writes his first letter. But it's around 50 AD that he writes uh, uh, a book called Galatians, which is a a region in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, called Galatia. And he says this when he's explaining to them about um, his life. But he says this in Galatians chapter one. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism and how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation and being exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, listen, Saul was making a name for himself by harassing, persecuting, and arresting Christians. And he's going to have an encounter with Jesus that is going to change his life. And this moment doesn't just change Saul's life. This moment changes our lives because Saul of Tarsus eventually becomes the Apostle Paul and he's going to go on to write half the New Testament. He's the one, as we read books like Galatians and books uh, like Romans, we're going to really have an understanding of the grace of God. And we're going to read Um, throughout his letters, how the Old Testament laws apply to us as believers. And here's why this matters, because there's people in your life who are not Christians, and you're praying, and you're wondering, I mean, are they ever going to come to know Jesus? I mean, should we just give up? Will you start praying for somebody else? Listen, can I just tell you? Keep praying. God's not done. There are people um, who youth might think will never come to faith, but when they do, 
they become believers with the most powerful testimonies and impact countless lives. So let's begin. Chapter 9 of Acts, in verse 1, here's what we read. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed and came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then he said, the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless and hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. If you pause there and give me your attention. We're going to talk about three ways that God changes people in the process of transformation. But the first is, if you're a note taker, that my conversion is the beginning of transformation. It's not the end. It's the beginning of transformation. Now, this story of Paul's, or Saul's conversion is so powerful that it's actually going to be referenced three times in the book of Acts and retold three times. It's going to be here in chapter 9, again in chapter 22, and again in chapter 22, uh, 26. The other two, of course, is Paul retelling the story. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, then this story is probably well known to you. For others of us, this might be your first time through Acts, and this is the first that you've heard of it. So just to get us all up to speed, let me answer a couple of questions that even if you've read this many times, maybe you've never asked, which is very important. The first question is this, why go to Damascus in the first place? Aren't there a lot of believers in Jesus all around Israel? So why leave Israel and go to Damascus? In fact, let me show you this uh, map because maps make things more exciting, as my friend Dora has told me. And so... So this is Jerusalem. This is where Paul is breathing murder and threats on the believers. This is where Damascus is. Damascus is in Syria. And so he takes the trek from Jerusalem. And of course, because as a Pharisee, he would never want to deal with Samaritans. So he's going to go outside across the Jordan River into this area that's called the Decapolis, which is a a term that means 10 cities. He's going to go through here, across the, uh, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's come back into Israel and then all the way to Damascus. This is a journey of about 135 miles and on foot would take a week to get there. So once again, it begs the question, why travel a week's journey one way, 135 miles to go to Damascus? Now, what we know historically is that there was a huge Jewish population in Damascus, somewhere around 30 to 40,000 Jews living in Damascus at this time, and there were multiple synagogues. And in these multiple synagogues, there was a growing population of believers in Damascus. Um, At the time, Christians, as we saw in verse 2, they were called followers of the way. Now, the reason they weren't called Christians yet, they'll start being called Christians when we get to Acts chapter 11 in a couple of weeks. But they were called followers of the way because in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And so they associated themselves, the followers of Jesus associated themselves with the way that Jesus had created for them. So the second question we want to ask is, why does Paul need letters from the high priest to arrest believers. So this is important, and and, and it's a question that rarely gets answered. But uh, remember, Damascus is not in Israel. It's in Syria. And even though they are both under Syria and Israel are under Roman occupation, um, one of the things that the Roman Empire recognized early on is they saw the high priest as the functional leader of Israel because he oversaw what was called the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, 
Rome did not want to get involved in internal religious disputes. That was not something they were interested. And so if someone were to flee Israel and the Sanhedrin wanted to detain them, the high priest would write a letter to the leaders of whatever other country asking for that person to be extradited back to uh, Israel so that they could stand trial before the Sanhedrin. And so this was part of the Roman system. Even within their own empire, they acknowledged that there were still uh, viceroys and municipalities that were keeping the peace in the empire. And they didn't want people from one municipality going over and causing problems. So you would have to write letters to, for the person to be legally extradited. In fact, in 47 AD, we actually have document of this, that Julius Caesar confirms the rights of extradition for the Jewish nation as far back as 47 AD. So now about 70 years later in 34 AD, there, it's, that's still in place. So Paul goes to these great lengths to imprison Christians because he thought he was serving God and honoring his faith tradition as a Pharisee. In Acts chapter 26, and Acts chapter 26 really gives us some color as Paul tells the story of his life and then his conversion. He says this, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do what was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the high priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Well, later in chapter 26, as Saul, or later Paul, is telling the story of his conversion. He says, uh, just after this, that he sees a light. Because what we read in verse 3 was he, there was a light that shone around him from heaven and he falls down. In chapter 26, Paul will give a little more commentary. He says, I saw a light that was brighter than the sun that knocked him over due to the intensity of it. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to notice something that Jesus does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Jesus identifies with his people and wants Saul to know that whatever you're doing to his people, you're doing to him. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a couple things to note here. In Acts 26, and we'll get there in who knows, a year. But in Acts 26, Paul recounts the story and mentions this little detail that's very important. He says that Jesus spoke to him in the Hebrew language. Now, this is important because if you've heard this passage before, and I don't know why pastors like to say this, but they, they say how Paul calls Jesus Lord and that that means he's ready to believe. There's all kinds of problems with that, but I'll give you two problems with that. The first is he doesn't know who it is that's talking to him. So how does he have enough faith to call Jesus Lord, doesn't even know it's Jesus who's talking to him. The second thing is, and this is what makes way more sense, is that if he is speaking to, if Jesus is speaking to Saul in Hebrew, and Saul answers in Hebrew, calling Jesus Lord, the Hebrew word is Adon, which means, is to say my Lord. It's a term that you would speak to a superior. This light shines, and he hears a voice speaking to him in Hebrew. Saul thinks, is it God? Is it an angel or some angelic type of supernatural being? Whatever it is, this is a superior to me, which is why he uses that term, Adon. And he recognizes that. So Jesus reveals himself to Saul, and then the story begins uh, to unfold as we read it. But one of the things that I want us to note here, because it's so important, is that when you become a Christian, that's not the finish line. That's the starting point. Becoming a Christian is not the end of your transformation. It is the beginning and the start of all the good that God wants to do in your life. And that's what happens, right? And you know this, especially if you're a parent, right? When your child is born, it's like, it's the beginning of teaching them everything. And one of the things that I was so shocked by when I became a parent was that we really had to teach these kids everything. And you had to teach your kids everything. And the things that you thought were the most basic things in the world, they had no idea because I guess somewhere along the line they, that got taught to you and then you got to share that uh, with them. And I, and I remember having this moment when my kids were younger, we went out for dinner and we went to this 
restaurant, and, and I'll never forget that the restaurant had these couches on one side, like this couch you could sit in, and then there were these chairs on the other. And so Mia was about seven, Xander was four, Livy was one in the high chair, and they wanted to sit, Mia and Zan wanted to sit on the couches. So we said, fine, Carrie and I sat on the chairs uh, across the table. We order our food, the drinks come to the table, and I noticed that this whole time my son has been chewing. And I'm like, buddy, what are you chewing? He says, bubblegum. I'm like, oh. And then I said, hold on. Where did you get bubblegum? And he says, oh, I stuck my hand in the couch and I found the gum in there. And that was right around the moment that my wife started screaming. And uh, she was about to uh, uh, have an attack of some kind. And, um, and, and th this, was a this was a lesson. Like, I had never told my son about ABC gum. I thought that was just kind of a basic thing, right? That people, do you know that there were people in the first service who had no idea what ABC gum stood for? And I was like, you know, maybe you just got here from Cuba and you just, you didn't, you didn't, you don't know. ABC gum stands for already been chewed. And uh, yeah, see the, the gasps, you see what I'm saying? And it's like, you just got here, right? Just got here from, and, and it's like, and by the way, good for you for knowing English so well that you can follow. And um, ABC chicle, yeah, you'll say. And, uh, and so anyway, um, but apparently, right, you got you to teach kids everything. And so, and I told my wife this that day, and I said, honey, you can give them whatever vitamins and probiotics what you want, but this is the stuff that gives our kids an indestructible immune system. And this is it right here. Weird substances that they chew. And so, and here's, and here's the point, right? You become a Christian, and you, you think you're pretty smart. I thought I was pretty smart when I became a Christian at 19. I was an idiot. You know why? Not because I was a Christian, because I was 19. And I didn't know anything. And I, all the stuff that I thought was so smart, I look back and I'm like, it is the equivalent of chewing ABC gum. Uh, and it's just like, what in the world was I thinking? And you know what happens is that you start walking with God and God starts pouring wisdom into your life. And here's the part that I love is that it never stops. When you become a Christian, and listen, sometimes people want to use that as a weapon against you. You know, you make them as, I thought you were a Christian. Like, yeah, I am, but I'm not a perfect one, right? I follow a perfect one, but not, I'm, 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 I'm not perfect. You see, that also means, by the way, um, we should be gracious to other people because, you know, they're, they're growing too. But listen, we've got to press in and commit to growing because spiritual growth doesn't happen automatically. And I think that's one of the biggest myths that is true about spiritual growth and maturity is that people think, well, I've just been a Christian for 10 years, right? I should be mature. Well, some people have been Christians for 10 years and other people have been Christians for one year, 10 times. And there is a big difference between the two. Growth happens when we are intentional. Coming to Jesus is the most significant moment of your life but it's only step one. What happens next? Look what happens with Saul. It says this. Now, there was a certain disciple named Ananias, and uh, to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive sight. Then Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm. By the way, it's like, dude, why are you telling God? Like, you think God is unaware of this gentleman? <laughs> Lord, I don't know if you know about this guy named Saul. Let me fill you in on some details that maybe you missed. Like, he didn't miss an episode. <laughs> he knows what's going on. And he says, the how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And, uh, and the Lord said, Ananias, do you ever hear the story about ABC gum? Uh, no, he didn't say that. He's, God is so kind to him. He just says this. He says, go. For he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once. 
and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. If you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you, if the first thing was that my conversion is the beginning of my transformation, the second thing that we want to note is that my growth is the development of my transformation. Our spiritual growth from infancy to maturity is called sanctification. That's the theological term. That's the term that uh, the Apostle Paul uses throughout the New Testament. It refers to a process, something that is sanctified is something that is set apart for special purposes. It is the process of you and I as believers becoming more and more like Jesus throughout our lives. But here's the thing that I find so amazing. Paul thought he saw everything so clearly, which is why he was persecuting the followers of Jesus. But he gets blinded because he's been spiritually blind the whole time. But after he's blinded is when he starts seeing things clearly for the first time in his life. This is why Jesus said to him, and I skipped it earlier and I wanted to cover it now, when Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you're not aware, a goad is a pointed stick. It's what would happen when you were using a pair of oxen, let's say, to plow a field. And if the oxen decided, well, we don't want to go. And then you would take the goad and you would poke them and then that would prompt them to begin moving in the right direction. But sometimes the animal would totally rebel. And if you would poke them, they would start kicking back at the goad that poked them. And so you'd start to, to, to prod them and then they would start kicking back and it would actually drive the goad in even further into their flesh. Jesus is saying, something's been goading you this whole time and you've been fighting it. I mean, what is it? that has been goading Paul or Saul this whole time. There's a lot of possibilities, and I think that there's a few that we can be sure of, but one of them, I believe, was Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, which we looked at uh, several weeks ago. That, that Stephen's sermon about how throughout Jewish history, the followers of God have always missed what God was doing and persecuted those who were doing the thing that God actually was doing. That goaded him. And then the fact that they laid their garments at, at Saul's feet as they killed Stephen. And Stephen, like Jesus, said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And that his face was like an angel at his death when he was martyred for the movement and the cause of Jesus. But see, listen, I think... The other thing was is that Saul saw believers acting like believers and he would arrest them and they'd pray for him. And they, so out of nowhere, listen, the light shows up, but God's been working on Saul for quite some time. God's been giving Saul a testimony of people who are really walking with God, followers of Jesus who are rightly reflecting him. And Paul, what Paul is experiencing now is very picturesque of what happens when a person comes to know Jesus. We come to know Jesus and call him Lord, but, you know, we're still in the dark about a lot of things. We're at the beginning of our lives and the, the story of our lives with Jesus. At the end of Saul's life, Paul's life, when he's in the Mamertine prison and he's about to be executed for being a Christian, he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because... That was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And this is the key. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way and immortality through the gospel or the good news. Listen, things always look different when you're in the dark, right? Isn't that the case? Things seem weird, you're in your new, especially if you're in a new house. You move into a new place, and, 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 and the house makes weird noises at night. Maybe it's a new house, the house is settling, or maybe the house is an older house, and older houses make sounds, and then, you know, you, you come around the corner, and you're like, you see somebody? Ah, there's somebody there, and then uh, somebody with long hair, and it wasn't. It was just a mop that was, you know, the, the, but, but you know, that's, you, that's not where you put your mop in the old house, right? There's always things like that. When... Uh, in our old house, our kids each had a room of their own. But when they were young, every night they would pull their mattresses out of their room, bring them into the family room, and all, they would link them together, uh, like this was an episode of the Transformers, and uh, link, like make this giant bed, 
and then the three of them would, would they would all want to sleep together like this was camping or something. Um, but they, it was like, they were like a pack of bears, the three of them. And personally, I, you know, and my wife would be like, are you, are you okay with that? I'm like, I don't care where they sleep. As long as it's not in our bed, they can sleep wherever they like. And uh, so anyway, so one night, and we're going back probably eight years. So Xander, I'm guessing, is about six years old at this time. Um, my son wakes me up because I hear him screaming in the family room. So I get up and I run to the family room. And what I see is, is that Xander is standing over his big sister, Mia, and he's just shaking her saying, Mia, the night birds are attacking you. And um, now here's something you got to understand about my daughter, Mia, is that once she's asleep, it's game over. And it doesn't matter what you do. She's not waking up. I mean, you know, you'd need to some kind of act of Congress before that. The kids told me a story one time when she was younger. Um, that, remember, they, they all sleep, they would all sleep in the family room. And then the, the younger two woke up. And they're like, hey, you want to watch something? And they're like, sure, but Mia's still asleep. Well, we got to wake Mia up. And we used to have this rubber uh, ball that had like these little rubber spikes on them. And they're like, okay, let's just take it and just throw it at her face. And, um, and that will wake her up. So they threw it and hit her in the face with the rubber spiky ball. And she slept through it. And they're like, there's nothing we can do. This is a power that we don't understand. And uh, true story. Anyway, these kids, they, I just found out about this story recently. There will be retribution. And, um, but anyway, so I get over there and he's shaking her, the night birds. The night birds, they're upon you. They're upon you. What is this? This is like biblical... Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And, uh, and so anyway, so he's shaking her so hard and I, 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 I grab him and I'm like, leave your sister alone. And, uh, and I turn on the, uh, the flashlight on my, on my phone and I'm like, Xander, there are no night birds. That's the design of her comforter. Which by the way, I, the pattern, they were squares. I'm like, what kind of birds what kind of these like rhombus birds are flying around? And anyway, uh, I'm like, there's no night birds, all right? They're just squares. And he's like, oh. Well, then Mia somehow wakes up and he's like, Mia, don't worry, it's okay. There's no night birds. It turns out it's just a pattern from your comforter. It's all good. And she's out. So then I lay Xander back down and he's like, Dad, I really thought, I really thought the night birds were attacking. And it turns out that it was... And he just passes out. I was up for the next four hours because I couldn't go back. I was so startled by all the screaming. And so I couldn't go back to sleep. Anyway, welcome to parenting, my friends. Your lukewarm meals will be served shortly. And so anyway, now, but listen, illumination brings learning and growing. We start getting wisdom in our lives and we start implementing that wisdom and our lives start looking different. I came to know Jesus at 19 years old, and I am so grateful that I came to know Jesus when I was young because I really wasn't settled on a lot of things. So I just heard what the Bible said, and I'm like, yeah, I'm just going with that. That sounds good. And, uh, and, I, and, and so, listen, if we talk about change and transformation, this is, I think, really the key to it. Um, if we want our lives to really change and for God to really transform us, we have to come to Jesus and accept what he has to say as the best possible way to live. And the more that you will go with what Jesus has to say and that it is the best possible way to live, the faster and the easier the transformation. The more you buck against that, or if I can borrow a phrase, the more you kick against the goads, the slower and more difficult the transformation is. But I be that begs a question, and that is this. Why are so many Christians not mature? And it's because they don't understand what it takes to be mature. Now, I put in your notes uh, how we reach maturity. It's three things. I'm going to give you all three and then explain them. The first is this, information. That's the beginning. We start with information, and we go from information to repetition. Information, repetition, and then the third stage is what we call mastery. And this is true in pretty much any area of your life. This is true with, um, you know, it's tr definitely true spiritually. It's true with hobbies. It's true with things that are, might be important, learning, growing, anything. 
Information is when you're hearing things for the first time. Spiritually, it's when you're hearing the Bible taught, you're hearing Bible stories for the first time, you're hearing passages taught for the first time, you're catching little nuances that you didn't hear before, and that, that kind of excites you, like, oh, extradition, I didn't know that, 135 miles, wow, there's a lot of people living, okay, I didn't know that, and, and, and that's exciting, because everything feels new, and then after a season of time, you will go from there to this other phase, the phase of repetition, and this is the part that no one likes, and this is the part where most people drop off. Uh, I, one of the things that I did to earn extra money when I was in high school was give guitar and bass lessons. And um, people would come over to my house and I would give them lessons and they were very excited when everything I was teaching them was brand new. But when the teaching became more about the importance of practicing and learning through repetition, that's almost always where people would drop off. And here's the thing, I didn't realize that, you know, all those years ago, God was preparing me for ministry and um, working with people. But this is exactly what happens in church, is that People will hear, you'll hear a pastor for a while and then be like, oh, he's not saying anything new and I've heard this before, so I must not be growing. Listen, this is the number one reason very few Christians grow to maturity in Christ. They cannot grow and persevere in the season of repetition. Do you know the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' 12, believed that one of the most important things that he did was repeat things over and over. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 1. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you, though you know and are established in the present truth. He's saying, I'm going to remind you, even though I know you already know them. Yes, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this tent or this body, to stir you up by reminding you. This is what happens in church. And sometimes you'll be like, oh, no, you know, I've heard that before. And maybe... Uh, oh, I know that. No, no, no. Because, listen, and this is big, having heard something and knowing something are two different things. And you don't really know it until you know it inside and out. And the only way you can know it inside and out is through repetition. That's why the third part is mastery. And this is where you really do know something inside and out. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you are married? Okay, I don't even need to ask this question. There is a story that you tell of when you and your spouse, how you met. And so many of you, listen, I'm sure of this, the longer you've been married, you have told this story so many times, you know which is her part to tell and which is his part to tell, and you don't even do this. You don't, in the beginning, it was like, yeah, yeah, you tell that part, you tell that part better. No, 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 you don't do that anymore. When my wife and I tell the story of how we met, I'm amazed by this. There's a part where she talks and then she just stops. That's my opening. And then there's a part where I start telling and then I stop and look at her because that's the part that she tells. Because we've told the story over and over and over again and mastery only comes through repetition. Spiritual maturity is the result of knowing God's word so well that it's like breathing. It's a natural part of your life that starts influencing everything you say, everything you do, and everything that you think. And then what happens next? Look what happens. Paul, Saul's baptized, and then verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And then all who heard were amazed and said, is he, this not he who destroyed those who called on this name and has come here for that purpose that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing, and that is that my ministry is the outflow of my transformation. The two questions that Saul asks in the beginning are questions that we need to ask. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? You see, that's the thing that I want us to think about as we close, that, listen, Jesus could have told Saul everything he needed to do. Instead, Saul gets told to wait, go into the city, further instructions are coming. Then God speaks to Ananias, and he says, hey, I want you to pray for Saul for his sight to be restored and to be filled with the Spirit, and then he's going to want to be baptized. I want you to baptize him. But I mean, couldn't the Lord Jesus have told Saul all those things without getting Ananias involved? He could but he didn't. And here's why. is because even though God can do it without us, he won't. He wants us involved in the salvation and transformation of this world because he delights 
and using ordinary people like you and me with our gifts and talents and abilities and involving us in the process of seeing people saved and grow. You know why? Because you and I, I think sometimes we miss the power of one person simply doing what God tells them to do. Something that seems just really small but can change the world. My story of how I came to know Jesus, and, and some of you know that, that uh, my wife and I came to know Jesus in my brother's kitchen. Um, that's the story. But the story really begins about, I don't know, 170 years before that. It begins with a guy, a shoe salesman named Edward Kimball, uh, living in Chicago. He was also a Sunday, he was a local businessman. He taught Sunday school. And he had a Sunday school class in his church, and he had a group of boys that he worked with, and he, gave, he shared the gospel one Sunday in, in 1855, and one of the kids who responded was a guy, uh, a young man named Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody becomes a very famed pastor, and um, at one of his service, a guy named Frederick Meyer, or F.B. Meyer, who becomes a pastor and a theologian, uh, he comes to know Jesus and goes into ministry. During his ministry, F.B. Meyer leads a guy to Jesus whose name is Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman works for the YMCA, and he hires this ex-professional baseball player who's become an evangelist named Billy Sunday to come and work for the YMCA. Billy Sunday gets invited to Charlotte, North Carolina to speak to a group of Christian businessmen about the importance of using their position and using it for gospel purposes. These Charlotte businessmen are so moved by it that they decide to have a crusade and they bring in an evangelist named Mordecai Ham. I don't know if there has ever been a person with a name with the most Jewish first name and the most non-Jewish last name, Mordecai Ham. Anyway, well, Mordecai Ham gives this uh, several-day crusade in Charlotte and on the last night of the crusade, during the second invitation, a young man, a uh, local of Charlotte, comes forward and gives G uh, his life to Jesus, whose name is Billy Graham. Billy Graham becomes, obviously, probably the greatest evangelist next to the Apostle Paul. And um, one, one night, Billy Graham is on television, and my friend Stephen's mom is watching and gives her life to Jesus and raises her son to walk with God. And one day, in about 1990, my brother is selling cable subscriptions through the, in the suburbs of Boston, and he knocks on a, on a door, and the door opens, and he says to the guy, uh, hey, do you have Warner Cable? And that young man, Stephen, says, no, but do you have Jesus? He invites my brother into his apartment, and two and a half hours later, my brother walks out as a follower of Jesus. Three years later, I'm sitting in my brother's kitchen as I'm visiting Boston with my girlfriend, now wife of 26 years, and my brother shares the gospel with us on May 29th of 1993, and our lives are forever changed as we invited Jesus to be Lord and Savior. And listen, there's a lot of people involved, but it starts with a shoe salesman, and we only went back 170 years. We could take that back a lot further. And you know where we'd end up? We would end up with 12 guys on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, listening to their rabbi teach about the kingdom of God at hand. My friends, God wants to change your life so that you can change a life. He wants you to be an instrument in his hand so that you can touch the lives of the people around you because you have no idea the reach that it could have. And listen, if you've come to know Jesus in this church over the last 23 years, then guess what? The story that I just told you is part of your story as well. And some of us, maybe that's what needs to happen today. Because God really does want to change your life. He wants to forgive your past. He wants to give you peace in the present. He wants to give you hope for the future. Some of us need to have a moment like Saul of Tarsus where Jesus just invades our lives and just totally changes the trajectory of our future because of our encounter with him. But the question that we've got to ask ourselves is do we want to be free? Because there's things that have been holding us back and things that have been holding us down and God is offering to us a change that'll change not only us for time but also for eternity. And all it takes is for you to open your heart to him. So here's what I'm going to do in the closing moments of our service. I'm going to ask everyone to stand if you would. 
because I truly believe that change is possible. God really does transform people's lives. And I'm telling you, I know that because I'm one of them. Jesus transformed my life that day in my brother's kitchen. My life has never been the same. And what it takes is for you to open your heart to him. And you might say, well, pastor, that's good, but I'm not into God. Well, guess what? Too late. He's into you. And I can tell you this, that was my story. I was not looking for God, but I'm grateful that he was looking for me. And so what we have to do, some of us have been knocked down. Some of us, the world has knocked us down. Some of us have been knocked down because God's trying to get our attention like he got Saul's attention. And you know what Jesus tells Saul? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to arise. I want you to arise. And he starts walking with Jesus from that moment. Listen, Jesus rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven and changed. And maybe it's time for us to rise. To rise above our past, to rise above our failures and our pain, to rise above our guilt, to rise above our fear and our doubt, to rise above who we used to be and step into who God has called us to be. Because Jesus really does want to take your life and transform it. That begins with forgiveness, but it doesn't end there. That's just the start of everything that he wants to do. He wants to forgive your past. He wants to give you peace in the present and hope in the future. So here's what we're going to do. In a minute, the band's going to begin to sing. And as they do, if you say, Pastor, that's me. I need Jesus to come into my life. Some of us, we're believers, but we've been kind of lukewarm in our faith. Some of us need to come back to the Lord today. And God is offering that to us as well. But whatever it is, this is our moment. And when the band begins to sing, wherever you're standing in this room, I want you to meet me here at the base of this stage. Because here's what I know. The Bible says if you will draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And that maybe this is the step in his direction that we need to take. And this becomes the step that changes all of our other steps going forward in our lives. So if you're ready, you say, Pastor, that's me. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to see God transform my life and forgive me. If that's you, then I want, when they start singing, you make your way here. You're going to leave this place different than when you came in. Pastor George, lead us. Your love so deep is washing over me. Your face is all I see. You are my everything. Jesus Christ, you are my one diva. Lord, hear my only cry to know you all my life. Your love so deep is washing over me. Your face is Great decision. Yeah, come on up. We're going to wait for you. Come on. Come on up. God bless you. And here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know that for some of us, there's a struggle. Come on up. God bless you guys. Yeah. For some of us, there's a struggle. Because you're saying, I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to be there. And you know what happens? Is, and I talk to people and they're like, I know I was supposed to be there and I didn't. And they drive home with just one more regret. Listen, what if this step that you take changes all of the others? That's what God is promising to us today is that we can literally be transformed from the inside out. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of who he is. That he loves us and he wants to transform us. And maybe this is the step that we need to take that makes it real. So listen, the band's not going to sing again, but if you say, yep, yeah, come on up. If you, yeah. 
If you say, Pastor, that's me, this is your moment. Maybe you came here and you brought a friend. Can I just tell you, maybe you put your arm around your friend and say, hey, listen, if you want to go up, I'll go up with you. That's how some of the disciples came to know Jesus. Yeah, come on up, bro. God bless you. Yeah. telling you I never belabor it this much but I just know there's 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 somebody else yeah yeah God bless you this is the step that changes all the others God bless you yeah all right let me pray for you church let's pray together Lord, I want to thank you so much for every person that's taken a step in your direction. And Lord, we know your word says that if we will draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And so God, I pray that as they call out to you, that you would hear from heaven and that you would begin the process of transforming. Because Lord, that's what you've done. That's what you've done with so many of us in this room. And we know that you're not done, that you want to continue to do it in the lives of these precious people. Listen, those of you guys that have come forward, I want to lead you in a prayer. And it's, it, it's not some kind of magic formula. They might be my words, but I pray that they express your heart to God in this moment. So I'm going to invite you to just pray it out loud. We're all going to pray it out loud together. Say, dear God, I come to you today. And I'm sorry for all my sins. But I thank you for Jesus who died for me, that I might have life. I want to walk with you, starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.